0: Welcome to The Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, and joining me today is Dr. Lara Ackman. She is a distinguished associate professor of psychology at Simon Simon Fraser University, former fellow of the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, and a co-editor of the World Happiness Report. She holds a PhD in social psychology from the University of British Columbia. Uh, Her research focuses on the antecedents and consequences of happiness and pro-social behavior. Most of her work examines how generous behavior makes people feel. And her research has been published in various academic journals, including Science, Nature, Human Behavior. Uh, She's been featured on and in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Maclean's Magazine, Forbes, CBC, CNN, and so many more that I'm uh, not going to list off here. She's also the director of the Helping and Happiness Lab at Simon Fraser University. What are we talking about in this episode? Well, I... Uh, you know, obviously, if you've been following me for a while, if you've listened to some of the conversations and uh, content that I have put out around COVID and the impact, I've talked a little bit about the mental health impacts of lockdowns, of being socially isolated and disconnected, and some of the impact and ramifications of the manner in which we have uh, approached handling this pandemic and interestingly enough dr acton led a team that looked at all of maybe not all because there's been a lot but a, a tremendous amount of the research and data that had been uh, that that had been accumulated over the course of covid-19 so looking at you know had rates of depression <clears throat> and anxiety gone up had uh, how how did it affect our uh our mental health you know things like lockdowns how do they impact us and some of the decisions that we've made as a society how has that impacted us socially so the the podcast is kind of broken into a few different parts uh, at first we talk about how uh, what the data was showing and what the research was showing uh, covid how it affected people on a global scale because again the research is coming from all over the world uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, then we talk about how it has started to impact people uh, in the last sort of several months because it's it's markedly different, uh, which is very fascinating because, well, as you'll find out, some of the initial research showed that there was a huge spike in things like social isolation and depression and anxiety, and then it sort of drops uh, and we sort of reach a baseline, but then it shifts over time. So it's interesting to see how all of this plays out. So that's the second part of the podcast. And then we move into things like generosity. How can we uh, not leverage generosity, but how can we be in a sort of generous state and what is the impact of that as a, on human beings? And so I try and poke and prod here and there to to talk about, you know, how should we approach some of these things? How do we prioritize mental health? Uh, when it comes to policymaking, when it comes to dealing with the pandemic in such a way that is beneficial for us so that we aren't sort of sacrificing and causing more disease, more dis-ease in other areas just by trying to solve a, a problem in one area. And so I hope that you enjoy this conversation. Don't forget to share it with somebody that you know will enjoy it. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you are listening to us on. And don't forget to leave a rating and review. That goes a long way. I appreciate everybody that has been doing uh, doing those in the last couple of weeks. Thank you very much and without any further delay let's let's welcome Dr. Lara
1: Acnin. I'm well. How are you?
0: I'm very well. I'm very well. I'm glad to have a fellow BC person on the show. I mean it just feels feels right it's where it all started for me and I love it. I actually miss being in British Columbia, so a little envious of where you are right now.
1: It's a beautiful place to be. I can't complain.
0: Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's kick things off as as I always do on the show just by the question that I ask all my guests, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life.
1: Sure. So I've had a few minutes to think this over, mull it over. Um, And one of the first memories that comes to mind might not seem so consequential, but I think has been pretty defining for me. Um, I have a younger brother. He's about four years younger than me. His name is Josh. And we were really close at our youngest ages. And then I think as as I started to reach early teenhood, we grew apart. We had different interests and different friend groups and whatnot. But there was one winter where we traveled with my grandmother and her sister and her two grandkids to Palm Springs for a week in the summer. And I my two cousins that were there were both young and female. And I had a lot to, we had a lot going on. We had a lot in common and my brother was there too. And day after day, we would go out and we would play and we would swim and we had a wonderful time together. And I, I'm certain my brother felt pretty left out in the whole event. And I remember this, this very clear memory of one afternoon of all of us in the swimming pool my my younger brother who was the youngest one there on the trip kept jumping on my back and I would shrug him off and he would jump on my back and I would shrug him off and and I turned to him and I said Josh don't you ever get tired of this rejection and he looked at me and said no because I know you love me and I feel like from that moment on you know all the the tension and the indifference and and the differences that had existed between us I think it was a pretty defining moment in in our sibling relationship but also just yeah he's he's one of my favorite people in the world and so um, I don't know if it like changed the course of my life, but I think it was certainly a moment where I appreciated and started to realize the importance of unconditional love and maybe how it's expected, <laughs> even when you show it.
0: <laughs> I mean, I was I was the oldest of five and I had two younger sing- sisters and then two younger brothers. Yeah, And the age difference between my younger brothers and I was 10 years and 11 years. They were 10 years and 11 years younger than me. Wow. And man, my one little brother was such a hellcat. I mean, he like he and he just had such he was gifted in understanding how to push buttons, you know, and then have me react and then have him play the like innocent younger brother who did nothing wrong. And then I would get in trouble. It was so infuriating, (laughs) but I was bigger than him and I was stronger. And so we had such a great dynamic. But I, I hear you on that part. It was like. Yeah, I know you love me. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: I need space and I love you. And yeah, yeah, I'll be here for all, all the good this, stuff. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, so before, so, you know, I want to kind of talk about a few things in this interview. So maybe I'll just lay this out for the listener so that we sort of have a, course of where we're going i want to begin by just having a sense of like what it is that you do in your work i would love for you to just explain that to our listener and then i want to talk about some of the research that you and your committee did i think it was committee last year about the pandemic and the mental health mm-hmm. and the some of the impacts of the pandemic on mental health talk about what's happened since and then i want to go into some of your work around generosity and happiness so that's kind of the terrain that I hope to cover today. So let's just start with you, your work and and what you primarily focus in on.
1: Sure. So I am a social psychologist by training and I am an associate professor at Simon Fraser University in BC. And most of the work that I do focuses on what leads people to live happier and kinder lives. And so a lot of my research, which you foreshadowed already, investigates the relationship between generosity and happiness. And so I spend some of my time teaching, but I spend the bulk of my time conducting research, trying to investigate when, where, how, and for whom engaging in kind and generous actions leads to better well-being. So primarily higher levels of happiness, sometimes greater health, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of my, that's the question that keeps me awake at night. That's the thing I enjoy thinking about. Um, and yeah, I'm very curious to know what factors kind of promote human happiness and, and human kindness, and especially where those two interact.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. Well, we're definitely going to dig into that. And I mean, interestingly enough, I think I was, are you familiar with Dr. Andrew Huberman out of Stanford? No. Ever heard of him? Very interesting character. He's done a, a lot of work. He's got a show online, but he recently did an episode where we talked about the research around gratitude. And he talks about like the best gratitude practices. And oddly enough, his sort of conclusion out of the research that he could find was that the most effective form of gratitude is the gratitude that we receive. And that there's actually this mutual, mutually beneficial and like reciprocal relationship that we engage in when we both give and receive gratitude. Because, you know, there's sort of like the trend for us to have gratitude morning routines and practices and whatnot. And and so it was sort of interesting to hear him talk about, yeah, those things are good, but the gratitude that you receive is actually, you know, maybe even more important than the gratitude that you give yourself. So just to, something that I'm sure that we'll we'll come back to later on in the in the show, just to sort of tease that out for the listeners.
1: Yeah, that sounds fascinating. I mean, there's some really cool work by Sarah Aljo and colleagues who's proposed that gratitude is really what she calls the find, remind and bind theory. So that gratitude is really to help us find the people... In our lives that are meaningful and are going to stick around, that we have these valuable relationships and remind us of the value that we we give to one another and, and bind and bring these relationships um, closer.
0: Huh, beautiful. I just so I've just finished a this is the last thing I just finished a book writing a book the manuscript and and I said that appreciation is the currency of intimacy and that this sort of idea is that when we give appreciation we're we're creating intimacy in that moment right like in action of intimacy so mm-hmm. I love i love hearing that okay let's shift gears cuz the primary focus of this conversation was to talk about what impacts we have seen the pandemic to have on mental health and well-being and the different areas i'm sure that we'll talk uh, you know about depression anxiety and those types of things but maybe just give a little bit of insight into some of the research and some of the findings that you and your team initially found last year.
1: Sure. So maybe I'll preface this by explaining who the team was and what we were doing. Um, so over the past year or and a half, two years, I've lost all track of time during COVID. Um, I have been working with a group, a fantastic group of interdisciplinary scholars for the Lancet's COVID-19 task force, the commission, and working on the mental health task force. And so I've been fortunate enough to chair this task force with about 15 members who are economists and social psychologists, and and they they span various disciplines and backgrounds. Really, who are trying to document and understand what what has been the impact of COVID nineteen on our mental health? In the early days, it's almost hard to remember, but you know, this was our fears and our concerns were very focused on respiratory concerns of, of what this illness might bring, and and so we were given this mandate to really try to understand. First and foremost, what are the neurological consequences of contracting this virus? And then what are the mental health consequences of both contracting the virus, but also living in this very different world than we had prior? So our lives have changed in no small manner as a result of these new public health orders. Fears that we might ourselves get this virus, of our loved ones might catch this virus, just living very differently than we had before. And so our group came together to conduct systematic review of the evidence. And it was no small task because, as you might imagine, there were dozens, if not hundreds, of new articles coming out very quickly. And and there were preprints coming out in a fashion that, you know, before before evidence had been peer-reviewed by typical, through journals, normal workflows, people were publishing results online in an effort to really share new insights as quickly as possible to, to really help the research community understand what was going on. And so over the span of several months, we collected as many papers as possible, but really focused our efforts on what we thought were the most robust and informative studies. And so for that, uh, we focused primarily on evidence that came from large representative samples, so not just like a small group of 15 students in the middle of Iowa, but like, you know, large nationally representative samples of Americans or Canadians or from Germany, from, from UK, had amazing samples. So these large and representative samples, and if they weren't representative, they were weighted to reflect the population of interest, and also methods that used well-validated scales and those that were pre-registered, where you know the experimenter said very clearly, these are the ideas we're going to test and how um, in, in advance. And so we accumulated the evidence on several facets of mental health, Primarily on psychological distress, which includes anxiety, depression, and distress itself; on subjective well-being, which includes positive and negative emotions and people's life evaluations. And then we also looked at two very close correlates of mental health: one being loneliness and its flip side, social connection, and also self-harming behaviors, which includes, you know, personally inflicting pain on oneself, but also included suicide ideation and, and suicide attempts. And so. We we called all the highest quality evidence we could and, and wrote this this paper. And the long and short of it uh, is that we found that certainly early on in the pandemic, there were huge, well, large and striking spikes in especially in psychological distress. So anxiety and depression in, in some very striking data were showing three times the baseline rates that we had seen in years before the pandemic. And, and importantly, this was coming from multiple studies in multiple forms of evidence, suggesting you know that it's not just a one-off study and it's not just one particular methodology that is leading to this misinterpretation. But when we combine what are probably the, new, the two most powerful forms of evidence, we're seeing consistent findings for this the sharp increase in multiple places. Interestingly, though, after if several months had passed, as we in North America kind of reached our first summer, when rates started to lower, but also um People may have started to adapt somewhat and slightly to new public health orders. In some places, evidence for anxiety and depression seemed to return close to and in some places to baseline. So there was this initial strike and spike in psychological distress that seemed to at least minimize over the course of time. and in some places in a manner that was consistent with lockdowns, but not perfectly so. Other facets of mental health showed what we thought were some surprising levels of, of resilience. So we had imagined early on, and I think many psychologists, including some of the folks on our committee, had wrote had written not issues of warning, but a concern that, you know, if we're separating ourselves from these very important social habits we have where we come together with others, but also facing this threat that is, you know, unknown in scope and unknown in duration and also just unknown in so many various ways that we might see this huge avalanche of negative outcomes But we were surprised to see that in some data sets, there was a small but statistical increase in loneliness. And in some data sets, there was none, which was kind of surprising. We thought that life evaluations might show a huge decline. But in fact, some data sets showed no change at all. Positive emotions and negative emotions, which tend to be... um, more malleable and responsive to daily life events showed what we expected. So positive emotions were slightly down and negative emotions were slightly up, but these large-scale, large cognitive measures that tend to be these global assessments of people's lives tended to remain surprisingly stable. There was even some striking evidence showing that at least in the first few months, the first 10 months or so of the pandemic, there was no increase in suicide rates across 21 countries, which, you know, that's not our only marker, but but it was a large and really impressive study controlling for trends in time, controlling for trajectories that would have been expected. There was there was no significant increase. And so, you know, to summarize the effects, I think at least when we look at large average levels, we saw an increase in mental health concerns in the early days, but that returned that, that minimized and in some places returned to baseline by the first summer, and then seemed to stabilize over that in, in the first year. Since the first year, I think things have have shown um a, a a growing and increasing concern for mental
0: yeah so we'll we'll come back to that yeah. part but i think i i appreciate the the recap cuz i think that's in, that's important so maybe give us a little bit of insight like give the listener a little bit of insight into what caused, like are there, or can you point to any sort of causality around the initial spike and what would cause us to return to baseline? I know that you talk about the psychological immune system quite a bit, which I would like to talk about in, in in a minute, but if you can maybe just share or shed some light on what may have caused that initial rise and then return to baseline.
1: That's a really good question. I don't know if I can give a very satisfying answer because there were so okay. <laughs> there were there were many, many data sets and many things. I mean, what I think we can say with confidence or speak to with confidence are these overarching trends that didn't emerge from just one data set, but from from and across many. That being said, there were so many variables changing at once, like the infection rates, the death rates, and international responses to how to handle the pandemic that it's it's very difficult to put our finger on just one. Several mm-hmm. singular factors that may have increased mental health concerns and then helped to calm them.
0: So tell me about the psychological immune system then. How do you define that? How does that play into some of the research that you've done and and what's sh- what should the average individual who's listening to this maybe need to know about that concept?
1: Certainly. So the psychological immune system is is an idea or a concept offered way before we came up, way before the task force started working on this question, but seemed very appropriate. And helpful in understanding some of the evidence that we saw. And the idea basically proposes that people are better at managing and responding to stressful life life events than we often anticipate or expect. Uh, So um, life throws many sometimes challenging and sometimes wonderful things our way. And we are creatures that respond to it, but respond to it faster than we may have imagined. So the positive silver lining of this is that we often surprise ourselves. And so um, When we face, uh, for instance, the breakup with a romantic partner or, you know, our expectations about a future vacation are foiled, we usually might think that we're going to be upset and upset, very upset and very upset for a long time. You know, it's not like we're completely uh, out of touch with reality. We do recognize and we do feel a sense of sadness and concern, but usually our emotional responses are not as extreme as we initially expect and not as long lasting as we originally expect. And so we seem to be more competent and capable in managing a lot of and responding to difficult life events than we do it in advance. And so there is also a flip side that when good things happen, unfortunately, the pleasure of those things don't stick around as as long lasting as we would have liked. But I think in the context of COVID, it it has been very helpful for many facets of disappointment. We've responded with a little bit more flexibility and grace in some cases than perhaps we would have expected.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting is that, you know, as I went through a lot of the research that you and the team had pulled together and just some of the research that's come out, at least came out last year because I was kind of keeping track on that. I've always kind of been of the mindset that things like isolation, I mean I talked to I think I talked about this last year, how isolation leads to an internal sense of amplification of our internal experience, right? So if you're somebody that is already experiencing anxiety mm-hmm. and you are removed from your normal social circle and your normal social interactions, that can actually amplify your anxieties, right? Or at the very least when if if you are removed, maybe your anxieties are lessened for a period of time. But then as you, you know, a year later, think about re-entering into those social circles with the threats of a virus and whatever else is going on. And now you've been removed from your social environment for a year. Now your anxiety is amplified, maybe even even more so than you had predicted or, or was before. So, where do you stand on on ideas like that 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 or or the impact of isolation at the very least? Like how have you seen isolation show up in some of the work? Or, and maybe maybe you haven't, I'm not too sure, but how have you seen the role of isolation show up for individuals and groups from a mental health perspective?
1: Well, a couple of thoughts are swirling through my head. So I think one interesting thing to note is, as I mentioned very quickly in that brief recap, is that loneliness, loneliness levels in some and in, in some of the largest data sets did show a significant increase, but not nearly as large as we would have imagined. So for instance, some really compelling data from the United States shows that, you know, before the pandemic, people reporting highly on these loneliness and isolation scales, there was approximately 10% of population that surpassed this cutoff during the pandemic, or at least during the early months, it was more like 12, to 13%. that's you know That equates to millions of people, don't get me wrong, but it's not a doubling of the rate that perhaps or tripling of the rate that we may have expected in early days. So there was an increase and it was statistically significant, but perhaps not what we would have expected. That being said, I think a lot of the findings emerging throughout the pandemic also showed that people who felt most isolated and disconnected from others were the ones who were experiencing the largest mental health concerns. And so it is an important predictor. Uh, we are very, you know, before the pandemic and during the pandemic, people are very social creatures. And so I think having our social, our typical social interactions disrupted is, is a pretty significant and inconsequential thing. That being said, I think it's important to note that physical distancing doesn't necessarily mean loneliness and isolation. I think people, and this this kind of circle, circles back to the point of the psychological immune system and, and maybe adaptation more broadly, we may have had, I've watched my kids go through now two birthdays without having friends and family nearby, at least in the way that we would have planned before the pandemic. But we've come up, you know, not some perfect, but some crafty solutions that have at least I think made our kids feel like they're not alone on their birthdays and and, and connected to our communities and, and people nearby. And so, you know, while we may not be able to gather in people's homes for the holidays in ways in which we would have before, I think people have found some pretty meaningful ways You know, for instance, we've even created new new holidays or not new holidays, but new traditions and new forms of communication. And so, you know, we always kept in touch with family. That was so far. I have uh, two uncles that live in Calgary. And and so we always we would have sporadic phone calls. We're very, you know, close. But through the pandemic, something that started in the first few months and has remained now for maybe 18 months is every Friday afternoon. We have Zoom call with my parents that are in Vancouver my um, household, me and my husband and my two kids, my uncles that are in different places and other cousins that are all around. I mean, so some new traditions have even emerged. And so this isn't to say that loneliness is not critical, but I guess what, and certainly a negative predictor of mental health, but I think it's to say that physical distance doesn't necessarily lead to and cause to, cause loneliness in ways, Mm -hmm. at least at the surface might seem problematic.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the questions that came for me as I read through some of this and and again we're not we're not entering yet into the research that's come out since right we're going to get into that in a second but i think one of the initial questions that came up for me was like okay cool like we're we're more resilient than maybe we had initially thought or or predicted and i think that that is both beneficial but also can have limitations you know because what what sort of came up for me was yes we are more resilient than maybe expected but should we be you know is that is that something that's necessary you know because we i think as human beings historically have been put in fairly heinous environments that (laughs) that we have adapted to right we we are adapting machines we're quite good at it But it doesn't necessarily mean that the environments that we're put into are conducive of long-term health viability. And it seems like we sometimes have very short-term planning when it comes to the health, mental health, and wellness of human beings. And so I just wanted not really even a direct question or assumption, but maybe just for you to sort of comment on, on, on that notion.
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think the fact that we are resilient doesn't necessarily mean that we should bank on that at all costs. I don't think Mm -hmm. that's an excuse or, or, you know, um, I don't think that should necessarily be our lifeline, excuse me, assuming that, you know, people are going to just be okay. So let's throw what we can at them and let them deal. I I agree with that. But I, I do think, you know, some people have proposed that this resilience stems from the fact that, you know. At a very basic and biological level, we as humans kind of need to attune our attention to what might be changing, especially in the negative domain. And so, you know, if we, you know, you can imagine in a very basic sense that if we're walking through a dark forest and everything is calm and quiet, you know, we, you know, we're on high alert um, and kind of adapt to the le- to the level of light available, to the level of sound available. So that if there is a big flash, or if there's something moving in the dark, or if there's something that scurries by, our attention is very quickly drawn to that. And so, for, for adaptive purposes, are you know we for survival purposes, I think humans are designed to be quite adaptive. And whether this is effective for long term uncertainty, it's probably not a great thing. But I actually think that's one of the reasons that uh, these these ever changing public health policies can be quite cause maybe a lot of concern is that the it's unpredictable what's going to be happening next. And so while we might be able to manage what we're dealing with right now, there's a lot of uncertainty. Right now we're facing this whole question of what Omicron is going to bring in the next few months. And here in BC, there's speculation that there might be business closures, restaurant closures, and, you know, just our a neighboring university had to move all their exams online the other day mm. <laughs> as a result of an outbreak of cases. I think everybody's just waiting for another shoe to drop, if you will. And, and, and we can adapt, but whether we assume that's going to be easy every time, I I don't think that's helpful either.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's, you know, we're, I don't want to take us out of the territory of maybe what we can talk about in this, in this conversation. Right. Cause I think there is the larger conversation of, you know, should we adapt and are those the right things to do when you see when you see things like, you know, small businesses taking the largest toll and from, I mean, from my, maybe you can speak on this before we move on to what's happened in the recent, in the past year, did you see a difference between like socioeconomic status and how people were impacted by the pandemic? And can you speak to
1: that? Yeah. So there, um yes, is the short answer. There were certain individuals or certain subgroups of the population that were impacted Most negatively by the pandemic, or to a larger extent, I think would be a better way of of stating that. Um, So, looking at a cross section of the data, we can see that individuals who younger individuals were were worse off, females tend to have a much harder reported um, higher levels of mental health concerns during the pandemic. Some of these differences predated the pandemic and some of them didn't. So, there have been some really impressive longitudinal data sets that have helped to parse these differences. What were pre-existing mental health stratifications versus what were new profiles of risk that emerged during the pandemic? At least based on the earlier data that I'm most familiar with, a few of the profiles of risk that weren't necessarily at risk beforehand, but have, have grown in risk, or at least did grow in risk during the early days of the pandemic, were younger individuals. So these were people who fell into the age groups of 18 to 25 and 25 to 34, possibly because they were in some of the most precarious positions, employment and otherwise. Also, females who tended to work in more precarious forms of employment, but also typically handled more of the child care and household concerns when there was rejuggling and reshifting. And then individuals who had young children at home. So as you can imagine, school and daycare closures were especially hard for these individuals who you know, couldn't work alongside a three-year-old who might be drawing on the walls. so <laughs> You can imagine that many people are at that intersection, right? So, you know, young mothers of young kids might be at this intersection who are facing a lot of challenge, especially in the early days. Yes, and maybe we'll get to this, but uh, I think that's one of the reasons our our task force, when we offered recommendations, proposed, you know, prioritizing safe access to child care um, and daycare and elementary schools. And we were focusing primarily on adult-driven data. Um, not not even speaking to the benefits that schooling has for young children, but just for the, for the adult population, how important that would be.
0: Yeah, interesting. Okay, well, I think that gives some, some good insight as well, because I remember reading a, a few different studies, and I think this has carried on, mm-hmm. but a few different studies around, you know, people who already had fairly severe mental health conditions, that being sort of exaggerated, things like overdose rates i know that i know that you guys looked at suicide rates and sort of they kind of stayed relatively the same or or came back to to baseline but i think consistently what we've seen and you can correct me if i'm wrong on this is that overdose rates have continued to grow and grow and grow and grow and i like i remember reading that there were almost as many overdoses if not more i think i think was almost as many overdoses in vancouver as there were covid deaths in 2020 and so like that you know that's i think was off by like 30, you know, 30 or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I remember reading that and being like, well, wow, okay, that's a pretty shocking and alarming piece of information. And then you have like the United States has just crossed 100,000 overdoses this year. Right. And so, like, that's a fairly substantial number. Right. And so it, it sort of brings into question, you know, how are we supporting those people and, you know, what does isolating the individual and locking down and the sort of like fear that is very prevalent within our modern conversation, support those people. And so again, not necessarily a question and and more of just like open for your your thoughts on all.
1: Yeah. Well, so so I appreciate you asking about the heterogeneity of this or like the, you know, so overall, our overall assessment, looking at average levels across the population masks, a lot of variation in how various individuals Mm -hmm. and subgroups are managing during this very exceptional time as your que- your previous question kind of pointed this this wasn't equivalent for all facets of the population. as I mentioned there were these three really unique risk profiles that emerged early on but those are not the only predictors of of individuals who struggled most so as you as you noted in people with pre-existing mental health concerns, individuals who were in lower and less stable work positions, also really struggled. And and yeah, I I certainly think that's important to acknowledge. One thing that we, you know, didn't um we wrote an op-ed about the results of of this paper that kind of probably reached more people than the original paper did. And one kind of one thing we really tried to avoid and um and and one I think negative interpretation of this interesting resilience piece is that, you know, one claim we weren't trying to make is that everybody's doing just fine. So let's get on with it. On the contrary, what we were trying to document was a very realistic image based on high quality data of what was happening, but to also show who was really struggling the most. And our argument was that, you know, with limited resources and with policymakers needing to make some specific judgments, or at least prioritizing where aid can be directed first, was to focus on individuals who are really, really struggling. And so the fact that we were seeing some some notable signs of resilience leads us to offer some precision on where we can intervene and who we can help with first. And those were mm-hmm. the individuals who, who had these risk profiles that either predated the pandemic or those who were newly emergent during the pandemic.
0: Yeah, awesome. I appreciate that clarification because I certainly know a number of, I guess you could say, like addicts that went through the pandemic and it seemed like just from an experiential standpoint of having those people in in my life and knowing them that their addiction was not helped at all by the by the pandemic you know <laughs> it was it was so they were sort of like left to their own devices which is which is not great at best okay well not to be sort of like grim or anything like that so Tell me a little bit about what has unfolded since. What have you found in terms of the more recent data? Because I think your your work came out in October of 2020. Is that correct, roughly?
1: Well, it's still in press. So the the preprint yeah, okay. is available online and has been downloaded, downloaded excuse me, like 2,200 times or something. But the actual print version has not been released by the journal just because that takes time. Uh-huh. But it's been peer reviewed and, and accepted for publication. And so it has passed the rigors of, the normal academic process, but yes, our review focused up till focused primarily on the first year of the pandemic, up to kind of if you will, spring, early spring of 2021, when we really, you know, the original draft of the paper really focused up till the end of 2020, and then when we were asked to submit a revision, we updated with major components and changes that had happened in in those months. But a lot has happened since. Full disclosure, I have. I was very in tune with the data up to, the, to that point where you know I was getting breaking news email updates <laughs> multiple times <laughs> a day on all these new papers that were available. And my attention for various reasons has 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 been divided since in part because our task force has turned our attention to a new um, a new question and a new uh, we're analyzing some new data for another paper. Um, and so I just haven't had the attention or the bandwidth to keep up with the original um, and amazing. Accumulation of evidence. That being said, I really have been trying to keep up with papers that are that that are looking at this at least big picture kind of consequence. And and I think what has emerged is is not the same level as resilience that we had seen in the early days. I think that is for many things for many reasons. Part of it might just be an, an exhaustion. I think this ongoing process for over a year now, and and the cascading and uncertainty. That has ebbed and flowed. I think has really worn on people. It, you know, we can adapt when things are stable. I think that was the point I was trying to make earlier. That when things are fixed and and not moving, we can turn our attention and for good reason to new information. But when the context and the landscape is the landscape is forever evolving, you know, I have some best friends that are teachers, and you know, they're just trying to remember what they should be doing, what the new policies are, what the new mask mandates are in their classroom. That's a lot to keep up with. It's a lot to you know if you can't find your stride that's exhausting and that's just one miniature example of this at large across you know millions and billions of people so I, the the time scale has been exhausting the level of evolving public health orders but also there are new waves and new variants and and i think you know there have been moments of optimism when you know vaccines were first introduced and then became available and then some places of the world mass vaccination and then in other places of the world it is not reaching i just think there have been ebbs and flows and so overall what the data are suggesting now is that there is at large through some amazing accumulation of the evidence um, they have found millions of additional increased ca- new cases of depression and anxiety estimating around the world and this is probably my suspicion is is perhaps even an underestimation because they're not able to collect data from everyone but they're using estimates to make some ballpark calculations, um, which are, they're very impressive, but we don't have, you know, we're not getting everybody to complete surveys. So all we can do is is use the surveys available to make the best and most informed estimates we can. And so I think the initial resilience we saw early on may may not contain, uh, may not consist and remain into the future. You know, I think there will be ebbs and flows. I think it hasn't been as catastrophic as maybe some early estimates would have espoused, but I, but I also don't think that, you know the the early return to baseline that we saw in that first summer is something that is has persisted
0: yeah i've certainly noticed that more people are feeling worn now you know it's like okay most people are vaccinated what's like you, what's the, what's the holdup here? You know, it's like being on hold to talk to a, you know, the, somebody at the bank and you're on hold for like 45 minutes. And then somebody comes on, they're like, Oh, sorry, just one, just one more minute. And they put you back on hold. And you're like, wait, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> it's probably a terrible analogy because it's, you know, 45 minutes versus a year and a half. But I think, you know, I think the listener will get it. Yeah. Okay. So, so what you're saying is that these things like high levels of depression, anxiety, are are starting to emerge. I guess, you know, where my brain goes to this, and I can kind of I'm always tuned into what the listener might be wondering and, and sort of curious about. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the sort of question that comes up almost immediately is like, well, what what do we do about that then? Mm-hmm. You know, like what are we as individuals, as a community as a as a culture as a whole is supposed to do about this knowing that social interaction like real human social interaction not you know unfortunately what you and i are doing right now which is virtual mm-hmm. knowing that that is actually a form of psychological sustenance for us that it's kind of like an emotional nutrient that we need mm-hmm. what do we do how do how do we begin to navigate this and and maybe that's a question above both of our pay grades but i i would be remiss if i didn't impose it
1: yeah well i, I think you know I think people have been creative. I think people have found, you know, ways to remain connected with those that they care about, um, and maybe not everyone that they care about. But I, I think people have had to make some tough choices about how to remain in contact with others and kind of adapt their lifestyle where they can. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if I have like practical solutions for everyone, but I think you know finding ways to prioritize remaining in contact. I think. We've lost many of the social structures that bring us in contact with many important people in our lives. And sometimes people we didn't even appreciate that were important. Mm. You know, so it may have been obvious a knee-jerk reaction to think that now that we can't visit our best friend who might be in another city, we need to set up Wednesday wine dates and do some kind of online piecemeal replacement But I think it's also kind of shown us the importance of what we might have not assumed was also really vital psychological sustenance, as you put it, which is just seeing, might be seeing colleagues that, you know, are are acquaintances or kind of these weak tie friendships that we, you know, we appreciated, but never really put a special value on. Um, I don't know about you, but I had this one experience, it was probably about a year ago now, but when a lot of the restrictions in Vancouver had finally eased, one of the local coffee shops in our neighborhood opened. And I went in and I saw Marista, who, you know, I, I don't know particularly, I know her dog's name because I usually bring my dog and we would have some minor chit chat. She kind of just said, how are you doing in passing? And I noticed I must have given like a 15 minute reply without even noticing. And at one point I caught her making eye contact with someone behind me and I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how much I just missed this like friendly banter and chatter that we have with people that, you know, I wouldn't make a special catch up date with her to, you know, check on, you know, someone in my community or a local barista, but it's someone who I enjoy interacting with. And and so I think it's notable that many of normal ebbs and flows of our daily life that bring us in contact with other people are gone. And there's some kind of mourning that goes along with that too. And so I think, you know, doing what we can to keep in contact with others You know The obvious ones that we wouldn't dare miss a beat on, which might be our close friends and family, but maybe even the folks finding ways to, you know, we have, I think, very fortunately found new ways to connect with others. Some of that has been surprising. For instance, my neighbors and I, we bought a projector and we now do like these local outdoor little movie nights where all the kids in our little neighborhood come out and we just put a projector outside and the kids are all sitting distanced apart, but we're watching something outside and it feels safe. And we wouldn't have done that before the pandemic, but it's been a new way to connect. And 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 sometimes, you know, Zoom might fit the bill at least as a temporary band-aid or replacement for some contact that we need in the interim. And so it's it's not a perfect and 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 entirely suitable replacement, but I think it's important to find ways to remain connected to those that we would have assumed would have been important, but even maybe those that we might feel this aching suspicion that we miss and, and not have thought to plan accordingly.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's, I think that there's many other broader questions that I have down that vein, yeah. but we'll, we'll, we'll leave that. We'll leave that for right now. Okay. <laughs> Cause I want to bring in, I want to bring in generosity and, sure. and, and happiness. I want to bring in generosity to this conversation because mm-hmm. I feel like it could, could be a good segue into what we can do. So tell me a little bit about the the work that you've done on generosity and, and some of the findings that, that you have come up with. And I know that we only have about we only have a couple minutes left so we're like leaving okay. we're packing all I'll give you the packing all the joy into the final part yeah <laughs> sure. give it give it to us
1: Okay here's the highlight reel So early when I started my graduate work graduate work into this day I've been really fascinated with how generosity might make people happy We started testing this in very early days with small samples and students at students UBC where I now know you and I both went to school we went out on the morning hours of campus we invited students to participate in a study on everyday spending choices and if they agreed they were randomly assigned to receive uh, receive either $5 or $20 to spend that day. And on the front of the envelope, it had some spending instructions. Half of the people were told to spend the money on others, and the other half were told to spend the money on themselves. We told them to spend the money by 5 o'clock so we could call them in the evening. Um, and when we did, it was a researcher who, who hadn't had previous contact, asked them a bunch of questions. But the key ones we were interested in were how they were feeling. What we found in that early study and many times since is that people who are randomly assigned to spend money on others were significantly happier than those who spent on themselves. Uh, This original study was with a small sample of students that are relatively, you know, in Canada, where most students were probably living relatively comfortably. And so over the years, I've really tried to expand the focus and see whether this is finding that might be enjoyed by a select few who have extra disposable income to invest in others, or whether this principle or or finding, if you will, that generosity makes people happy might be a broader phenomenon in most humans. So over the years, I've been able to partner with fantastic people to address this question. We've looked at data from the Gallup World Poll, representative of most places around the globe. We find that people who spend generously report higher levels of happiness. We, in the past month, when they've given in the past month, they report higher levels of happiness than people who don't. We've conducted experiments in rich and poor countries around the globe, even in small-scale traditional societies where people have no electricity, no running water, you know, these very small communities that look much like our ancestors used to hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. And there too, we find that when people use a small endowment of financial resources for others, they're happier than when they spend on themselves. We've seen consistent evidence in kids under the age of two, smiling more when they give treats away to a puppet than when they receive the same treats themselves. And more recently, we've been investigating this in antisocial actors, so ex-offenders and gang-involved youth, people who, you know, by their track record and history, at least show evidence of reduced signs of concern for other people. There, too, we see greater emotional rewards or higher levels of happiness when people spend money on needy others than when they spend on themselves. And so my colleagues and I have argued that this might be a, a, a far-reaching Um, aspect of the human psychology, that we feel good when we help others.
0: And I mean, I feel like there's almost like a theological bent that we could go down. But again, I feel like this maybe not. I mean, I don't think we have time for that. (laughs) But tell me, like, in your opinion, or from the research perspective, what is it about giving? What is it about generosity that we that we feel so rewarded by?
1: Well, I I think there are several things, I think. um, But I think one of the main driving forces is that we as humans are very social creatures and generosity allows us to build and sustain these really important relationships with other people. And so consistent with that notion when people give in ways that are very socially connected, like if I were to take you for dinner, I would I would enjoy higher levels of happiness afterward than if I just sent you a gift certificate for the same value and you went on your own. Mm. So when we give in, in very socially connected and meaningful ways, we feel better about it. We also feel better about it when we give in ways that are clearly impactful. So we've run studies where, you know, people will give to charities that are very explicit and articulate about how this money is being used to improve the life of someone else. And other charities don't do such a great job on that. You know, you're giving to a charity, but you don't know if this is going to buy pencils on someone else's desk. So right. charities that make it very tangible and clear how your your dollars are helping someone in need, those also provide the largest, if you will, bang for your buck. And and finally, another factor that really seems to matter is that people feel they've chosen to give. If I right. force someone to give, it's not nearly as rewarding. And so that might have something to do with the fact that you know we, we want to see ourselves as generous people. But I think primarily it has a lot to do, or lots of studies suggest that it has a lot to do with the extent to which we can have A positive impact on others and kind of strengthen these relationships.
0: Wonderful, I appreciate you condensing a lot of this down into a (laughs) A decade worth of work. (laughs) Right, yeah, a decade worth of work in eight minutes. I feel like that'll be uh, that'll be part of the title. I mean, I've you know, I remember a few years ago, I gathered a group of men and everyone contributed a certain amount of money to go down to Nicaragua and. We helped to rebuild a school, an existing school, and like they didn't have floors, so the the floors were just you know bare earth, they were just dirt, so we poured concrete on the floors and we built walls and we built a playground and we like refurbished a bunch of the school, but it was interesting because all the men paid to go down and they paid for the materials for the rebuild and then they went down and did it and you know, the, again, this is like 20, 20 guys, right? So it's a very small sort of like personal story, but all of the men were just blown away by how rewarding it was to contribute in that way, you know, to not only, to not only sort of finance it, but to then go down and build it. And so I do think that we, the thing that I think that we undervalue and underestimate is contribution, you know, and that, Maybe, maybe part of the generosity is that we feel like we can contribute. I know there have been periods of time in my life where I wasn't able to contribute anything financially. I mean, I was just like such a broke student, you know, at UBC, <laughs> living off of macaroni and cheese and, you know, these terrible stir fries that I would make with lunch meat in them. I mean, it was, it was horrible. It was bad. <laughs> you know, it was really bad. And I'll never forget getting to the place where I could contribute, where I could give Two family, two friends. I could buy a meal for my parents and stuff like that. And it was just like this really sense of like belonging. You know, I feel like we as human beings, part of our sense of belonging comes in our ability to contribute to others, whether that's through generosity, financially, or to of our time and etc. So, yeah, I appreciate that. Any final words on generosity and how it ties into well being before we close out our conversation today?
1: Well. I was just thinking as as you mentioned your story there, I was wondering if that was your life-changing story or your trip to Nicaragua with your friends. But also I remember when we published our first paper on this topic, my grandmother, who was alive at the time and was, you know, spent her life helping other people in, in any which way she could. Um, she, you know, she was completely unaware of she did not I was kind of the first in my family to really go through post-secondary and to never mind go to grad school and finish and all that. And and so she had no idea what publishing a paper was like, and she read it and she was like, this is so wonderful. She's like, i got to say one of the biggest regrets of my life was not earning more mainly so that I only, because I wish I could have given it away. And this was a woman Mm. who spent her entire life giving everything that she could to others. And so I think that was really her purpose. You know, like that was, that was where she found a lot of her meaning. That was where she found a lot of her joy. And it wasn't always financial. But it was, you know, it was it was one thing that she could she could clearly do. And so, yeah, tie this whole conversation together. The evidence that has emerged, some evidence that has emerged and it is really consistent with this is not only is generosity rewarding before the pandemic, but it has also been one of these things that we can do to protect our mental health and well-being during the pandemic as well. Numerous studies have shown that on days in which people help others, they feel better. And experiments show that people randomly assigned to help others during the pandemic versus help themselves during the pandemic are, are also reporting greater well-being and so you know it's not that self-care isn't important is isn't important as well but reaching out and helping others might also be one of the most tractable ways to help ourselves
0: outstanding outstanding what a great place to stop i i appreciate that thank you so much for coming on the show this is a great conversation and i feel like everyone that tunes into it is going to get a lot out of it. So if people want to learn more about you, the work that you're doing, the research, Mm -hmm. anything that you're putting out, where should they find you?
1: I think by checking out my lab website or emailing me.
0: Awesome. Wonderful. And we'll have the links for both of those things in the show notes. For everyone that's out there tuning into this, don't forget to share this episode with a friend. Don't forget to subscribe to whatever channel you are watching us on. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.